Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. Around my house, you can tell what time of year it is just by who's around. My husband's a teacher on winter break, so he's there during the day. And my son is back home from college for a few weeks, too. The place is humming. And this is a week when a lot of folks are spending a little more time than usual with loved ones. And with that togetherness comes the possibility that the conversation will turn to something where you just don't see eye to eye, like politics or race. Later this hour, we're going to talk about what to do instead of avoiding those hard topics. But first, more than 1,300 guns have been stolen from cars around Nashville this year. The problem is not new, but it has gotten worse. So how did we get here, and what are the consequences? WPLN's criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been tracking guns stolen from cars for a few years and joins us now. Thanks for being here, Paige. Yeah, good to see you, Nina. So you worked as a reporter in several other cities before you came to us here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. What did you think when you started getting the regular emails that the Metro Nashville police <laughs> sends to the press yeah. with gun theft numbers? I was just like, I was totally shocked and confused and bewildered by like why this was like a normal email that we were getting in our inboxes and why people weren't talking about it more. I mean, we're, we're looking at usually like at least like a dozen guns are getting stolen weekly. Um, and so the numbers just tick up and tick up and increase. And over the last couple of years, they've just sort of blown the numbers out of the water from from previous years. So take me back. How did this become an issue? And, and where did this whole thing start? Yeah, so you can kind of trace back the problem to a 2013 law that people often refer to as guns and trunks. Um, but basically, it just allows people, gun owners, to to carry in their motor vehicle like they would uh, an extension of their house, let's say. Um, and so you see from like 2013 on, the numbers really start to increase. Um, and like I said, in, in the last couple of years, um, the number of guns has has basically doubled since five years ago. So it, it has gotten exponentially worse. And, and how have the laws changed in that time? Yeah. So instead of tightening the laws, um, Tennessee has just continued to loosen our gun laws here. Um, we had the permitless carry law that passed in 2021. And one of the issues that has arisen out of permitless carry is that it takes a lot of emphasis off of gun safety training. And part of what happens in gun safety training is learning ways to responsibly lock up and store a firearm. Um, So you saw the Metro Nashville Police Department and, and Police Chief John Drake even saying like don't pass permitless carry like we don't this is going to make this situation that we already can't get under control a lot worse Uh, and we are likely seeing the impacts of that as I think it's more than 1,320 guns have been stolen this year that's 20 higher than it was last year and like I said more and more guns are stolen every week so who knows what the number will be by the end of of 2022. Do we have a sense of who is taking the guns? Yeah. So, you know, I think 
it's a crime of opportunity in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of times people aren't locking their car doors. A lot of times people aren't locking their gun away um, or even putting it away in the glove compartment. Uh, I've had people tell me that they've seen guns just in plain sight on somebody's dashboard. Um, And the resale value of some of these guns can be a couple hundred bucks. So in a lot of ways, if you're a person who is cash strapped and you need to get money, um, this is an easy way to get money. And so um, we do know that that some of these guns are ending up uh, in kids' hands. Um, there's a practice called car hopping, where basically they go to a place like an apartment complex or a mall, and they check car handles to see what they can find. Um, and we're seeing, as we're seeing the number of, of guns in cars uh, increase this year, that we're also seeing the the number of teens that have been charged with gun possession is um, the highest that it's been in several years as well. Uh, and some of those kids, we've, again, been getting press releases, have been caught bringing those guns to their to their schools. So juvenile court judge Sheila Calloway told me last year that these charges and these kids coming through the system could be easily prevented. You know, it's heartbreaking when I see youth that come through our system that literally, if we as a community had simply locked our car doors, kept the keys with us, and locked our guns in safe places, that these cases would not be down here. And the juvenile court is keeping a close eye on these numbers, um, especially because uh, police presence in schools this year is at the highest level that it's been in a long time um, after the mass shooting at the elementary school in uh, Uvalde, Texas. What are the consequences of all of these guns getting stolen or, or ending up in the hands of children? Yeah, I mean, I think... You have the numbers, right? Um, But then you also have the personal stories. Um, So last year I interviewed um, a couple of people who were involved in this one case that sort of really illustrates the possible consequences of of kids getting their hands on guns this easily. Um, I interviewed a young woman named Jasmine Wheeler uh, who started car hopping at 14. And she told me um, that she would steal the guns and then she would sell them to help pay for things for her younger siblings. Like she told me once that she um, she would she would go car hopping if her younger siblings had a field trip coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also she would she would use the money to buy things like drugs. The first time I found a gun in the car is actually the first night I've ever car hopped. It was that easy. And then the last time she car hopped, she was with a group of kids from her school. Um, She found a gun. They all got back in the car and the gun went off uh, and she accidentally shot and killed a boy from her school named Jose Luis. What happened to Jasmine and to Jose Luis's family? Yeah, so Jasmine, um, the the juvenile court determined that there was no evidence that she intended to shoot him. Um, And so she was charged with criminal homicide and handgun possession and then pleaded to a lesser charge. But she spent three years in juvenile detention. Um, And then I also talked to Maricela Morales, who is Jose Luis's mom. um, And I interviewed her about the impact of, of his death and 
you know, she has lost a lot of her eyesight because of diabetes and um, Jose Luis really took care of her and helped her out. And um, they would cook a lot together and she would sell the things that uh, they would cook together at markets and stuff like that. And when he died, um, you know, she can't cook by herself anymore because it's not safe. She can't sell that food to help pay for her rent or the surgeries that she needs. Um, and she just told me that, that her heart is broken and she just feels really alone. A esas mamás que tienen sus hijos, que los cuiden, porque una, una pérdida de un hijo duele mucho, muchísimo. And there she's saying, you know, protect your children, moms, because, um, especially from guns, because losing one just really hurts so much. Um, and unfortunately, like, this is just one story to illustrate the broader problem, but these stories are not uncommon, and guns are now the number one killer of kids in the United States. Black children and Latino kids like Jose Luis are more likely to be killed than other kids. So it seems like teens are definitely getting caught up in this. They're paying the consequences. Yeah. But what about gun owners? Is there any kind of penalty for them? Yeah. So people have discussed this as a possibility. Um, and that was actually something that police chief John Drake brought up when permitless carry was introduced. He was like, maybe let's include some sort of penalty for if a gun owner leaves their gun in their car unlocked. Um, and the problem with that is that uh, we only know the numbers that, that we know of guns being stolen from cars because people report their guns stolen from a car. Mm -hmm. And so the second you start putting in place a punishment for the gun owner, then it's very possible that you obscure the, the size and the scope of the problem because people won't want to report themselves. So is there a possibility for change? Yeah. So I think at this point, as we've been talking about all of kind of the legislative changes that have happened with our gun laws in Tennessee, um, this is a problem that would need to be addressed legislatively. Uh, but there is not a whole lot um, that that individual jurisdictions can do. And it does not feel like there is a lot of political will in the legislature to tighten up our gun laws. You know, I think this the state of Tennessee has worked really hard to make itself uh, to seem like a place where there's a lot of freedom, freedom of speech and freedom uh, to to carry a gun. And so um, I, I think if anything, it's very possible that we are going to see in 2023 gun laws continue to be loosened as opposed to be tightened. Um, we've already seen House Speaker Cameron Sexton uh, on a, a local radio show just this week saying that uh, the legislature is considering uh, what they call a real constitutional carry bill in 2023, just further rolling back uh, restrictions on who can carry guns and where. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. Thank you for your reporting. Yeah, thanks Thank for, for being me. here. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're talking tough dinner table conversations and inviting a few young folks from our community to tell us how they handle them. When a thorny subject comes up with family, what do you do? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. 
every generation has its strengths and weaknesses. I'm a Gen Xer, and I think a lot of us are really good at jumping in and figuring things out without handholding. Probably came from all that time spent occupying ourselves after school with zero adult supervision. Well, the This Is Nashville team has noticed that the folks who are in high school and college right now are particularly good about talking about difficult things like race and politics. Makes sense. It's a sign of these times. It's holiday break for most teens and young adults, which means they're spending more time at home and potentially butting heads with mom or dad or grandma over exactly these tricky subjects. So how are they handling it? Sid Siddiqui and Angelique Quimbo are back home from the first semester of their freshman year in college. Jamin Jackson is an Overton High School student getting ready to head down to visit family in Mississippi. And Chris Stedman is about to start his studies at Fisk. Thank you all for joining us today. Chris, tell me about holiday gatherings with your family. How many people usually come together for Christmas and, and what's the vibe? Um, it's usually about 30 to 40. And for the most part, it's pretty well, not for the most part. It's pretty good most of the time. And, um, you know, we have a good time. We have actually for Christmas, we have a pajama party. So everybody comes over in their pajamas. You know, the adults do karaoke. Me and my cousins, we might play the game. So for the most part, you know, it's pretty calm and happy. But every now and then those conversations do break out. So, you know, it could get, you know, pretty hectic at moments, but we'll come back to the, the joy and the happiness. Well, yeah. And that's what I was wondering if folks usually try to keep to safe topics or did, does your family just put it all out on the table? Uh, no, my family, we don't shy away from it. I mean, we don't go looking for them necessarily, but when it comes up, there's no shine away and everybody is quick to throw in their opinions on the topic. Well, then what, what does happen then when there is that disagreement? So you're saying everybody's kind of throwing in. Well, does it get yeah. heated? Or? Yeah, it, get, it gets pretty heated. Uh, my family, both sides of my family, actually, we're very passionate. And I see where I get it from, obviously. So, I mean, it gets heated and everybody's yelling. I mean, from an outsider looking in, you would probably think, oh, they all hate each other or it's toxic. But to be honest, it's just how we talk and how we communicate. And, you know, we're trying to get our different viewpoints out and, conversation can sometimes it can last up to 30 minutes sometimes it can last up to two hours at times but we all eventually come back or you know get back to what we're doing karaoke start singing you know eating or whatever playing cards we usually play face 10 or something so we usually bring it back you know and people just move on and and forget about the whole conversation or not forget about it but move on from it yeah Angela how does that compare to your family do you do you tend to be on the same page about things like politics um so for my family we kind of don't see eye to eye all the time on politics um for the holiday season we try not to bring up politics too much for our Christmas or holiday traditions we usually spend spend it with our family friends and there's around seven families so there's a lot of people there and usually we try to shy away from conflict um usually the parents are on one side of the spectrum and the kids kind of um are on another and I feel like that's constant in our society right now so yeah so when those kinds of topics do come up maybe when it's just your family and not all the seven households how how does that tend to go when those things come up? Yeah, so it doesn't have to be a holiday season for my dad and I to butt heads all the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. um, so my dad and I are typically the ones to talk about politics if it's anyone in my immediate family. Um, typically, we try to have a civil conversation. Um, so I'm a poli-sci major in 
my first year of college, so I'm learning all these techniques and um, different ways to engage in different conversations with people who might not agree with me. And so that's kind of useful, especially right now and especially coming from a background with a dad that may not agree with my political views. Um, typically, it goes well, and I, I feel like it has been going well recently, especially. Jamin, you're getting ready to travel to a big family gathering. Are you more likely to talk about those kinds of things when it's just your own household, or does kind of things come up with the whole extended family? Uh, we're more likely to like talk about it in our own close household. When we get to those big family gatherings, we're more focused on, hey, we're all here as a family. Uh, let's just sit down. Let's eat some good food. Let's play some good games. Like We're all family. We all love each other. Now's not the time for the outside world. Uh, let's bubble ourselves in for a second. We all love each other. Yeah. Sid, how often do politics come up in your household? Uh, I would say. Um, oh, no, go ahead, Sid. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say probably on a weekly basis at this point. Um, oh, pretty regular. Usually, it's just two or three people in the house. So, and I'm also a poli sci major. Um, so politics have n- never been a topic that I've been afraid of addressing. Um, and my family knows that. So even though we don't disagree, we don't agree at times. They they know what's coming and we've kind of figured out how to navigate that. Well, you say this comes up often in your home. Is that why you're a poli-sci major? Um, I think so, yes. Just a mix of being this new generation and just kind of, you know, being a first generation American, like seeing all these problems impacting people you love and, you know, inside and outside of the country, how they're going to affect you, you know, just kind of accumulates over time and brings on a bigger passion. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. We're talking this hour about how to have difficult conversations with the family over the holidays. And my guests are all in that stage of life where you're really stepping into who you are as an individual and feeling out where you agree with your parents and where you maybe have some different opinions. Sid, I understand that you and your father had a pretty important talk about abortion after the Supreme Court issued its Dobbs ruling this summer. How did that conversation start? Um, I think I was actually the one who instigated Um, but I just remember I was sitting on the couch watching the news and I said something. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but my dad replied to that. And at first I was kind of distressed because I didn't really know how to like get my ideas across without sounding disrespectful. So I just kind of asked him, I was like, you know, what makes you think that, you know, like, can you back up your claims here? So he did. And I listened to the whole thing. And then he gave me like my time to reply. And, you know, that's just kind of when I realized, you know, we need to have that mutual understanding. And he told me, he said, when you're going to come across these kind of conversations, not even political conversations, just difficult conversations your entire life. So you have to just take a moment and collect yourself and make sure that you're actually hearing another person's perspective. So you're not just stuck in your own and you have that ability to grow and maybe even help others grow with your opinions. So it sounds like you both gave each other a lot of space where you were listening. How did it feel to have your dad really listen to you? Um, it was very validating because usually 
um, I think I can speak for this generation when I say that we kind of feel very overlooked at times just because we're so young and, you know, older generations, they might see us as not as knowledgeable or wise about subjects, but it makes you feel like you have the potential to create change or not even just create change, but have this own opinion in your head that you're confident about and that helps build your confidence and your self-esteem. Well, I'm curious. I mean, the Dobbs decision, that was just this huge thing that just kind of rocked the whole country this summer. Did any of the rest of you have kind of one of those conversations with your family after that decision? Or was that kind of a, ooh, let's be real careful here <laughs> kind of moment? Did uh, For me personally, like, I felt like I had no really place to talk about it. I was like, hey, this isn't about me. This is more with uh, people like my mom, people like my sister. They get, they really get to talk about this. I can input a little bit, but my views on the whole thing, like, should be, hey, like, this is theirs. Angelie, how about you? Um, So just going off of what Sid said, um, my dad and I actually have conversations about Supreme Court rulings, specifically the overturning of Roe v. Wade this summer um, as well. And just realizing that my dad and I grew up in different countries and had different experiences that shapes um, our views and a lot of the problems that we're facing in the U.S., um, so I was born in the Philippines and my dad grew up in the Philippines his entire life. And so that kind of shapes um, his perspective on a lot of topics. Um, he grew up very Catholic and I did not. So his opinion about abortion um, kind of goes back on like a religious lens, whereas mine kind of goes back on maybe human rights issue. Um and so, as Sid said, I also had that space with my dad where we kind of went back and forth about why we feel this way and our personal views, knowing that there's differences and that's okay. It feels like people your age have some better tools or are more willing to talk about sensitive subjects like race and elections and abortion. Chris, why do you think that is? Um, I think it's a young generational thing i feel like when you're you know 16 17 18 19 years old you're young you're kind of stepping out into the world and out of the box of being you know always around your mom or your dad or your grandma you like you said before you become your own person and you start to see the world you know however you see it and you know you're passionate about it. You know, when you're young, you're more passionate about it. If you see something that you like, you're more passionate to say, I like that. If you see something you don't like, you're more passionate to say, oh, we need to fix this. We need to change this. When you're, um, as you get older and, you know, as life, you know, cause life is, is rough. So life will beat you up sometimes. And you just, you know, get this attitude of, well, it is what it is. But when you're young and, you know, in college or in high school, you, you're, you're just passionate to, address these situations head on and especially in this you know day and era where you know things are I don't want to say getting crazy but it's getting you know it's getting out of the norm um I think you I think it it just makes more passionate um, teenagers and young people Chris you said things can get heated with your family but at the end of the day you all love each other has there been a time when a conversation with a family member changed your mind um, yeah, um, all the time. Um, I mean, I heard somebody said before, 
the best thing about it or the hardest part about it, but what's very crucial to these conversations is being open-minded. You know, it's easy to go into an argument or a conversation thinking it's my way or the highway, whoever disagrees with me is wrong automatically. But with an open mind, you it gives room for growth. It gives room for reflection. And you might not admit it right then and there. Sometimes, you know, in the argument, you might not want to seem like you've lost. But when you go back to your own, you know, room or you go back to wherever you go, where you're just by yourself and you think about the conversation you just had, you're like, man, you know, some she or he really did say something, you know, that really clicked with me. And you think about it and it changes your opinion. So I think having an open mind in a conversation is very key and important. And there's been times where it's changed my mind or somebody's changed my mind. Sid, going back to that conversation you had with your dad, I'm struck by the fact that this isn't something that just kind of randomly bubbled up, that, that you started that conversation and you, it sounds like you knew the two of you would disagree. Why did you decide that it was important to talk it out? Um, I think that's a problem that not necessarily Gen Z has, but that everyone has is that we're not encouraged or confident enough to have these kind of conversations with adults or people of authority. And that really negatively affects us just because, you know, we're this next generation of political leaders. We're going into industries. We're basically taking over in the next two decades, three decades. So, I mean, you have to have those kind of conversations, even if they're difficult, you just, you have to be comfortable enough with your own thoughts to push that out and just rely on other people's perspectives to build your competency. I'm really curious about something. Um, For all of you, what lessons do you think you have for your elders? I mean, what can folks who are my age, your parents' age, your grandparents' age, learn from you and your friends and how you talk about these things? Angela, you look a little bit thoughtful. Um, I would say that I, w- I would encourage my parents and I have in the past to keep an open mind of, as as it was been said. Um, it's important to have an open mind because we have different experiences than what happened maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, and our society is changing. Government is changing. Um, the way that we're living our lives is different than what our parents or the older generations have carried out carried out with their lives. Um, so just like the validation of different experiences and experiences that may be independent to a specific generation or a specific group of people is really important. And that's where um, my recommendation to have an open mind and be cognizant and be compassionate about um, another person's experiences, whether they may be the same or different than yours. Jamin, is there anything that you think we should be learning from folks your age? I would say that when it comes down to it, when you're talking with other people, like this can go for both sides too, that there's a conversation uh, that you're not trying to win. Uh, your goal isn't to try to change like an, another person's opinion. Your goal is to understand their opinion, learn from them, uh, know who you're talking to. Uh, and when it, and something my mom always used to say would be to, uh, you have two ears and one mouth. Uh, you should listen as much as you, uh, twice as much as you talk. So that would be my sense of advice. How about you, Sid? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, even if you don't agree with someone else's perspective, they're still out there in the world and there are going to be so many people you disagree with and you're going to have to face them eventually. And the way the world's advancing at such a rapid pace, this generation struggling to keep up with it. I can't even imagine, you know, like it's hard for everyone. So we just kind of have to keep in mind, you know, coexistence is an, it's an, an inevitable thing. So we just have to make peace and, you know, just remember why we're so passionate. We're trying to change these things. So just understanding all sides of it is such an important thing for anything, not even just politics. Yeah. Uh, another thing that is like really important for both sides to understand, understand that uh, we're all human. We all have the right to an opinion. When it comes down to it, we, it just, it's just human nature to have opinions about things. And sometimes those clash and you, and it's not fact. Like what I'm, what I would say to my parents isn't gospel. It's just how I think. And that's just how humans work. So we've been talking kind of big ideas about how to talk, but let, let's get a little more specific. What are, like, name a hot button issue that can really get your dinner table a little bit heated up. I mean, Chris, what, what's something that's really gotten things fired up recently with your family? Um, I would say because I am African-American, definitely um, we <laughs> um, culture versus racial. We talk about um, things that, you know, hold our community back a lot and culture versus race um, racism. Like some people may think that, oh, racism is why we're in this, that and the third, da, 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 why black people are at the bottom. And some people in my family think it's our own culture that we have to change and our own culture. And it gets pretty heated at times. And I'm more on the culture side. I mean, I could see both, but I'm more on the culture side. I feel like uh, my community, we have a lot of things in our culture that are negative and um, that's just not, you know, positive. And it can, especially, you know, cause I've seen a lot of my friends, you know, turn into somebody they're not and, you know, just, act just act like somebody they're not and it ruined their lives for the next you know couple years and they've been struggling now off of it so that's um one i mean abortion is one but we usually all agree on that one um men are just you know just different things but it's usually the culture versus racism how about you angeli um i would say the topic of abortion um access to health care as well as the growing poverty line in the United States and how the government is going to counteract that. What gets you guys talking, Sid? Um, I think the two primary topics that have stuck with us for a couple of years now have been gun control and just general welfare programs. So, And actually, my family has kind of changed my perspective a little bit. Oh, about Aziz gun control. How so, so? Yeah. Um, after just kind of listening to their sides of it and doing my own research, I just kind of took into consideration factors that I didn't before. And I think that just comes as you grow as a person as well, uh, as you get older, as you go through more. You know, you just, you have different views and that's okay if that happens. So, yeah. So for all of you, once you're in one of these discussions... What's your approach? Do you have any advice that you come back to for, okay, this is how I can keep things civil and productive and, and moving forward in a healthy way? Does anything come to mind for, well, Jamin, you mentioned 
some advice you've gotten from your mom before. Uh, again, like, you have two ears, one mouth, to listen as twice as much as you talk. But another thing that, like, really helps, like, try not to, like, find as many counterpoints as you can in an argument. If someone says something and then you're like, oh, I can counter that, that shouldn't be how you look at a conversation. Uh, you're looking at it as, like, something you're trying to win, strategies strategies that you're trying to beat them with by focusing on counter arguments instead of they're just, like, them just talking to you and you're now not listening anymore and now you're not getting anywhere and you're just backtracking and it's not really helping anyone. What goes through your mind, Angelie? Um, So what Jameson actually said um, reminded me of my years as a policy debater in high school. And so it was a little bit of a tendency sometimes to find those counter arguments. Um, But that's not at all what a conversation should be. Um, When I try to have a conversation with my family, especially with my dad, I try not to have generalized statements, um, a blanket statement that covers a huge group of people. Um, um, Also, I try to bridge that middle ground. As we see in our society now, um, our politics have become very, very polarized. And so it's there's not really that middle ground where people agree. So I kind of try to facilitate, oh, this is where we agree. How can we kind of build on that a little bit more? Well, I am blown away by the amount of wisdom that I'm hearing from all of you guys. We've been talking with Sid Siddiqui, Angelique Kimbo, Jamin Jackson, and Chris Stedman. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're talking strategy, how to be prepared for whichever way the conversations turn when all the extended family gets together. What's a tip you live by in those situations? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. It seems like there's one in every family, that person who can somehow insert something offensive into any conversation. Or there's a big political divide, and you are walking into Christmas dinner thinking, please don't anyone mention the January 6 hearings. So what's the game plan? How do you prepare for that potential awkwardness? My next guest is an author, filmmaker, and social activist who thinks about this stuff a lot. Molly Sikoris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm kind of blown away by what I just heard. So yeah. <laughs> that was some amazing, beautiful insight from a, some young people. And I, you and I were talking about how at that age, what we sounded like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're blowing me away. They're so smart. Well, talking about race and bias and privilege is something you have come to literally make your line of work. But family, especially extended family, is such a complicated dynamic sometimes. I understand you get together with your sister and her family this time of year. Is politics on the table for you at those kinds of gatherings? Well, it's been a few years because of COVID since, and I won't be getting together with anyone um, uh, this year, but... There, the last time we were uh, 
together where there was a political conversation, I remember, it was the year before the election where Trump was elected. And we were at the Thanksgiving Day Thanksgiving table, and I I was sitting with three Republicans, military background, and the subject came up of who you were going to vote for, and I remember stealing myself and going, okay, here we go. And the conversation ended up being a debate between the three of them on which one they would vote for, Hillary or Bernie Sanders. And you could have blown me over with a feather, but it was it was a very and I just sat there and listened to them debate and I didn't say a thing, which is highly unusual for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think people should keep in mind when they're preparing to see family, especially family that they only see at the holidays? That is a tough one. Okay, so First of all, there is no one size fits all because the dynamics of every family obviously are different. And so, but I think that the first thing that people have to do, what I suggest is what, ask yourself these questions. What are your motives for engaging? Why are you going to engage in this hot topic? What, what, what do you hope to gain from it? I mean, do you really believe that there is an opportunity for an enlightened conversation where maybe some hearts and minds are shifted or softened or changed or whatever? Um, are you looking for a fight? You know, let's mm. be honest. Are you looking to introduce something that makes you have the moral high ground. Do you believe you have the moral high ground when you're about to enter this topic of conversation? And is there a little bit of um, resistance in you and readiness to to fire? Um, Are you wanting to reinforce some part of whatever you identify with? Are you looking to reinforce that? Um, Is there, how invested are you in being right? And at what cost do you want to have that feeling of being right? So those are some things I offer up, like before you even open your mouth. Um, and and also, and because we had young people, are you testing out some new knowledge? I remember when I first started thinking about race, it was 1996, 97, really seriously. And I just aged myself a little But But anyway, um, I remember going through a period of about three years where I thought of myself as the white person who got it. You know, Mm -hmm. I liked being the white person that got it. It was your identity. It was my identity. And I, and I remember my approach back then and, and I really kind of sort of took pleasure in throwing someone off, you know, kilter and, and spewing a lot of my opinions in their direction and things that I thought of were facts. Um, and, and some of the things I said may have been true, but the way I did it was not an invitation for a conversation. And I think that you just had a conversation with some young people that reinforced that. So some folks feel like, well, I care about this issue so much. This is about taking a stand for what is right. It hurts to see my family go down the wrong path. So what do you say to someone who is with that line of thinking? I say look for the opening in the conversation. And the young man that was just here said 50-50, talk and listen. I say 80-20, 80% listen, 20% talk. Because when you listen, you... You, you want to find the opening to the conversation, which might allow, if you really care about your family's um, sort of 
uh, your, your, your family either changing their mind or behaving differently or being more in connection. I mean, sometimes it's because you feel alienated. You feel so alienated from your family because they're so far away from you. So you're trying to win them back. You know, you're trying to have some kind of common ground. So I say be sincerely curious. Like, like real, when you ask a question, when you ask your drunk uncle a question, make sure that you're serious about the question, you're, that you're sincere in, in hearing what he has to say. And before you do all this, I would say, um, again, before you rattle off all the statistics and opinions, um, open that door. And, you know, even if it's, oh, my God, you look so great. I love those clothes. I love that new shirt. I love the new hairdo. I mean, do all that stuff that allows someone to feel like you aren't the enemy already. And that might sound superficial, but it's like whatever you got to do to find that common ground. Um, because otherwise you're, you're preparing for battle and not a conversation. And, you know, I got to tell you, I want to tell you something I, I reached out to when I knew I was doing this. I reached out to Christopher Cooper, and he's the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor um, at West Carolina University. And he's the director of the Public Policy Institute. And so I said, you know, give me some insight. You know, what, what do you... And he said, basically, he said, unfortunately, the research consistently shows that changing minds is next to impossible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the contradictory facts that we all bring up at the dinner table can cause people to hold to their misperceptions more strongly than they did before the correction. And uh, the only, and the research shows that, um, you know, the focus on impact is, is listening. And, and basically that's what we've been talking about here today. Yeah. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about handling difficult subjects at family gatherings. My guest is Molly Sikor, author of White Privilege Pop Quiz, which is a sort of guidebook meant to encourage white people to explore their internalized racial fears and biases. What is one tip from your book that you think folks could take into their family gatherings this week? Okay, well, I ha at the end of each chapter... I have a sort of a summation that sort of starts out. It says, because I am white, you know, because I'm white. So I recommend that people personalize the things that they are saying. So, for instance, before I get to some of those, let's say you, you brought up the January 6th insurrection. OK, so that's a hot topic for some families and, and could be a real barn buster. So I say play a game of what if. And that the way that you present that topic of conversation is, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And I started thinking about what if Obama, President Obama, had led the insurrection mm -hmm. and that all the people that showed up at the Capitol were primarily black and brown people. And everything that happened at the Capitol happened with these people being part of it and that President Obama encouraged it. And how would that play out? And how would I feel about it? And I'm just curious, what would, how would that feel differently? Would that feel differently? And again, sincere curiosity. So you, you ask those questions in a way that's not sort of hitting them square in the, you know, the face and all they can hear is I'm wrong, but you ask them to kind of go on the ride with you. How do you decide if you're the person you're considering having this discussion with, that, that relationship is really there to be able to have, to go down that what if? 
Well, that you have the the trust and the respect to go there. I think that that's a I think that's an instinctual thing. And I think most of us do understand who we're dealing with for the most part. I mean, one of the young ladies talked about the discussion she had with her father. She obviously had a, a feeling that there was enough love there and there was enough trust that they could sit and talk about something. Again, if it's your drunk uncle who's always throwing a grenade in the room, maybe, maybe pass the potatoes. You know, I, I mean, really, what, it, you know, again, it comes back to what is my motivation? You got to know why you're engaging in the conversation. And if part of it is about you establishing yourself as an activist or the person who gets it, um, then maybe, you know, give it a pass, you know, because the, the point is, I mean, I'm not against having these conversations. I'm just, uh, I just shy away from useless, meaningless dissension and discord when, you know, the holidays are generally a time where people, like you said, rarely come together. So why would you do that? Well, and, you know, to that point, there are those family members that you really only see maybe once a year, once every few years, should we try to keep in better communication with them? Well, that's that I think you you just made the point that I was actually going to say is like if you're not in in regular communication with them and having conversations other than the, the Christmas table and that that is an indicator of the level of connection that you have. So if you're not in touch with them at all um and you just show up to maybe demonstrate how misinformed and misguided they are and that they watch, you know, they get their news on the Cartoon Network, <laughs> which <laughs> shall not be named, and you get yours from whatever sources you get yours. Right. Uh, again, it's, I mean, I, I, I think the the responsibility for every person is to be honest about why you're engaging in it. And, you know, I certainly, there are, like, you know, you've invited me here to talk about something that I feel passionate about. I know that what I have to say is maybe not people aren't going to agree with me, but it's welcome, you know, at the dinner table. And if you and if your mother has begged you repeatedly, please, can we not talk about the, you know, um, you know, and, and again, I, I think when, you know, we've just heard from a group of young people who are wired very differently than maybe you and I were coming up. And so there is that, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of change in the air. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discord in the world. And I think that's a way people are trying to work it out, but the way to work it out is, you know, you've, you never insult your way into changing someone's opinion. Um, but one of the things, and at the, uh, we, we, getting to the, like the end of each chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just go to chapter one. That There's a couple of questions I ask is because I'm white, I can decide not to discuss race or whiteness or address it on any level. Now you can take that, that one statement and you can tailor that to yourself in a conversation. And you can say, you know, I realize, you know, we're sitting here sort of avoiding this conversation. And I realize that, you know, as a white person, you know, as white people at around this table, if it's an all white family, we don't ever have to talk about it. Isn't that interesting? We don't ever have to even think about it. We don't have to think about um, what it means to be stopped by the police or come up like, Mom, you've never warned me when I walked out, when I went out for the night to be careful if I get pulled over by the police. Isn't that wild? I just started thinking about that. So take it and personalize it and not turn it into a grenade. 
We just heard from these really smart teenagers <laughs> and, and young adults, their advice for people who were their parents' age. Do you have advice for older generations when, when these kinds of topics come up and uh, well, about engaging with these, these younger folks? I would say 80-20, listen 80%, speak 20%. And again, your motivation. And I, and I think as people who are, you know, over 30, over 40, over 50, is we like to believe that we have the insight and the wisdom and as we just heard a few minutes ago, I mean, this is, you know, several generations coming up. I mean, they have so much perspective. And I believe that the, that generations are coming in wired differently anyway. And they are more open. They are, I mean, we know they're open. Look at what's happened in the last 15 years in regards to gender and the way that it's being spoken of and dealt with. And, you know, it doesn't matter what side of it you're on or how, how you understand it. But I mean, they are wired differently and they do have incredible insight. And to be honest with you, um, I, I really, I look to hang out with younger folks just because of that. <laughs> So a lot of people tend to focus on making their own point very, very clear. But you have, you've talked about listening and the importance of specifically asking questions. And, and why is that? Um, because I think when you ask questions, first of all, if you ask them sincerely and you're not thinking about your answer, as one of the young people pointed out, if you're not just already with your rebuttal, but when you ask questions um, and you wait for you know, you wait for the answer there, the, the, especially if there's a little bit of silence in between, I think that that silence can create a connection between the two of you. And, um, and it also gives someone a time to, um, kind of really feel, I mean, I think if you allow for that space, somebody can go, huh, maybe, maybe I don't need to say this. You give them a moment to decide to maybe just, um, sort of shift their opinion or to say, you know what? I never thought about that. Well, Molly Sikor is a filmmaker, activist, and author of White Privilege Pop Quiz. Molly, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, what's next for Metro Arts after employees went public with accounts of discrimination in the agency's office? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Mir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs>